0: Feeling hardy in my cardi Armed with insulation foam I pit my wits against the cracks and splits that fill my leaky home With a mighty laugh I block the draught beneath the kitchen door Just another night of fighting in this endless eco-war I boldly scout the shopping out I am the kind of buyer who researches every purchase for the dirt on the supplier I cycle, I recycle, I have more faith than George Michael, because um, it's all about the cutting-edge uh, cultural references in this poem. Um, I have more faith than George Michael, that getting my own lifestyle right's the only way to win this fight, <laughs> even though my... Friends and neighbours, strangely unmoved by my labours, keep taking reckless impulse flights, leave their TVs on all night and defend their God-given rights to 60,000 Christmas lights. Until one day's moral tussle, local or organic muscles pushed guilt fatigue to new extremes. That night, I had the strangest dreams. I dreamt, that Martin Luther King was standing by my compost bin and with impassioned words told me which methods he preferred to keep the fruit flies out and the kitchen peelings in. But as he gave my crazy paving speech after noble speech on his dreams of different compost schemes with pros and cons for each, he wasn't firing up America on justice, class, and race. And without his flame, the world became a sadder, darker place. That vision burst, I fell headfirst into another scene where Chris and Sylvia Pankhurst, their mother Emmeline and a thousand other suffragettes sought recognition and respect, but not with chants and shouts and chains and hunger strikes to stake their claims they sought the same effect by being sure when at the store to only ever choose kitchen products guaranteed to be empowering to use. Then I saw Gandhi getting handy with a pair of bathroom pliers to defend his independence from the British occupiers, not by mobilising peasants into peaceful mass resistance, but by fixing leaky taps and putting bricks inside their cisterns, while the abolitionists, instead of fighting slavery, just stayed at home and put a bit less sugar in their tea. I woke up with a start, with pounding heart, my body aching, and my belief in the Observer's lifestyle polites badly shaken. <laughs> Even I could see that eco-piety was great for scaring off speed dates, but it won't change society. (laughs) I should be the change I want to see, try to avoid hypocrisy, but taking one car off the road won't make more trains and buses run. Stopping up one leaky home leaves countless millions to be done. If I want to be noticed by the people with power, should I join a mass protest or fit a new shower? And getting in a panic if my balsamic's not organic is less useful and more draining than just doing some campaigning. So, now I've met people all around me I would otherwise have missed. Young, old, often well-respected, unexpected activists, they don't just care, they are prepared to take the action that's required. The plumber and my mum are feeling equally inspired. We'll fight the problems at the top and build solutions from below with humour, hope, and energy, and this is how I know that if you want to stop the tales of climate doom coming to pass, yes, reduce your carbon footprint, then use it to kick some ass. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much, Danny. That's Danny Chivers, and you'll hear a bit more from him in a moment. Welcome to this Agile Rabbit event, held in collaboration with the Global Systems Institute and its conference, Lovelock Centenary, that's been running at the University of Exeter uh, over the past few days. I'm Rutula Shah. I present The World Tonight on Radio 4. And the question, of course, we're exploring is, can I do anything about climate change? Do I change my diet? Do I cancel my summer holiday, or do I sit down in the middle of the road and protest? Is eco-living something just for sort of rich people, or should I seriously consider putting some solar panels on my roof, or is it about time that actually governments stopped guilt-tripping individuals and actually took some dramatic action and made some real change? We've got a brilliant panel tonight to discuss all of this. Stefan Bohm is professor in organization and sustainability here at the University of Exeter. He's published five books, including Eco-Cultures, Blueprints for Sustainable Communities, and regularly writes for a number of well-known publications. Piers Forster, on the end, is Professor of Physical Climate Change and Director of the Priestley International Centre for Climate at the University of Leeds. He's a member of the Committee on Climate Change, the public body, to advise government and parliament. In May this year, the CCC recommended a move to net zero greenhouse gas emissions by the UK by 2050, which was later announced as government policy, although we do now have a different government, so there's... Big question mark there, I'd say. Uh, Catherine Senior heads the Understanding Climate Change Sector at the Met Office, uh, Hadley Centre. She's co-chair of the World Climate Research Programmes Committee that coordinates international modelling of climate variability and change. Molly Scott Cato is a British Green politician, academic, Environmental and community activist and a green economist who's currently a member of the European Parliament for South West England. Before her election as an MEP, she was Professor of Strategy and Sustainability at the University of Roehampton. And Danny Chivers, you've met already, he's a climate change researcher, activist, and performance poet he's the author of the no-nonsense guide to climate change and the no-nonsense guide to renewable energy Danny is among those to speak out against BP's sponsorship of cultural events welcome to you all so I'm going to begin by getting personal I'm going to ask each of you how you've changed your life in the face of climate change can you name three things that you now do differently Danny what have you done
0: I guess the the most obvious one is I've got more and more involved in climate activism of all kind of all of all different sorts from my university years onwards. So uh, I co-founded an activist theater group called BP or not BP. We challenge oil sponsorship of the arts and we do kind of guerrilla theater against that. On the, uh, but you know on the personal lifestyle level uh, I have also been vegan for 18 years and I've Never learned to drive. But I've always lived in cities where I can cycle around everywhere, so that's easier for me than it is for for a lot of people.
2: Molly. I've stopped flying, and I've also given up my car. And I'm not a vegan, but I'm trying to work out the best way to eat and organise land management and and food and so on. That's two things. I'm looking for a third. Well, OK, so I am... OK, every time in the European Parliament, I go up to the uh, vegan food selection, and I consider whether I would actually eat it if I put it on my plate... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and uh, sometimes I take it, and I just don't eat it, and I figure that's worse than think, choosing I something I would eat. I've offended Danny but, already, but I'm, I have made that change, Stephen.
3: Lucky me, I've recently publicly declared I won't fly within Europe anymore. So if you check my Twitter account, uh, it's all there to see. So can't hide. After trying for ten years, I've finally successfully moved to be become a vegetarian. I've become involved in changing the University of. We have had our first success in, in making the top management board to declare a climate and ecological emergency. Uh, that has happened through grassroots internal action.
1: Catherine.
4: So I guess the most significant thing I think I've probably done is to try and fly less and use video conferencing, for example, more at work, certainly. That doesn't mean I don't fly, I still do, but where at all possible, certainly within the UK and Europe, that's been successful. It's harder when you're going to conferences on different time zones, so that makes that more difficult. Personally, I've reduced household waste as much as we can and done home insulation. These are small things, I guess, but probably things that everybody in the audience has also tried to do.
5: Well, I do live in a very conservative town, uh, and I think at first I really didn't use to talk to my friends about what I did, and I was a bit embarrassed about it. So when um, they go, off on their conservative diatribes. Uh, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, and so I think what I do now, in fact, is I really start to, challenge these people, and I put them in their spots, and I say, this is what I do. What are you doing personally? So that's a big thing I've done. Uh, and quite like the other guys, I do try and do the odd bit. We put double glazing in our house. we got a new boiler. Try and get rid of one car. We have a, we, we were a two-car family now. We're kind of just kind of half the car. LAUGHTER um, uh, 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 um, but the third thing I do, which I think we still haven't heard from anyone here, is I do feel incredibly g- g- guilty that I'm not doing an awful lot more than I am doing.
1: I think guilt has got to be a little bit of part of this conversation. So these are some of the things we, you're all doing. I haven't fessed up to anything. But the question is, can I do anything about climate change? And that, I think that's where the guilt perhaps comes in. So... Danny, if you are taking all this action, how do we actually measure whether what an individual does makes any difference, actually practically reduces CO2 emissions?
0: So I, I think there's, there's a real kind of... Obviously, different answer to that question, right? Because we could say we could measure an individual's carbon footprint and then we can map out the different bits of it. And this has been done a lot by a lot of different people. And you'll find there are certain things like you know, your daily commute, your diet. Certainly, if you're flying, that's going to swamp everything else. But... Um, what's more interesting to try and think about, and possibly try and measure, is what impact your other actions outside of your own individual lifestyle might be having. And and if you say you've been part of some community project that's helped to insulate fifty houses in your local area, then you know, do you actually then have a share of that saving? If you were. Part of a direct action that, you know, shut down a a polluting power station for a few days. Do you you count that towards your personal emissions reductions? There's a lot of different ways you could decide to measure it. But but so much of it is really hard to measure. And I think if we look at the big shifts that have happened in terms of public consciousness and awareness and media coverage around climate change in, in the last sort of six, nine months... A lot of that was based on huge amounts of work that lots of people have been doing for years to kind of build things up to this tipping point where more people got involved and other things happened. And how do you measure the impact of that is, in- is incredibly difficult. And I think the only way we'll really measure it is by looking back <laughs> in the future in 20 years' time and saying, you know, did we avoid the worst impacts or not? That's the, that's the only measure that's really going to count.
1: Piers, the fact that we all like wearing these watches that measure how many steps we've taken and how many calories we've eaten, we all like measuring things. If it is so complex that we can't measure how much impact our individual actions might have had, isn't that a good reason why it puts people off? People are, it's easier to sit there and feel guilty than to do anything.
5: Well, yeah, in fact, in fact, I was going to slightly come back on that. We, we really do have quite good... Um, measurements now what individual countries are doing and within the countries we can even track consumer goods and things so we have two professors in my own department of fact that are really good at this so what 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 they come up with are individual emissions by consumption Uh, and if we track the the Country, they're about 30 or 40 percent on top of what you would say our national carbon footprint was, so and they aren't reducing as fast either because we're still importing a lot of goods from other parts of the world. So, so. Uh, we really can tell what we're doing. I mean, it's very hard to tell what a precise. T- if, if you if you go the, the one going the supermarket and you pick one individual tomato, it's very hard to tell what the colour <laughs> of that individual tomato t- 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 is. But we do have enough information to aggreg- aggregate, so, so we-, we can do we can we can we can kind of work it out and we have the technology
1: so we can count molly where do you sit then in this interface between what an individual can do and what is really the responsibility of governments? as someone who is driving or hopes to drive government policy how much
2: guilt how much responsibility should individuals take I I don't think guilt's very helpful. I think guilt drives people into continuing their behaviour in a more sort of determined way very often, and it makes you feel miserable. So I I don't think it's very helpful. I think the most important thing is to give people clear indications about what they can do, and then encourage them and congratulate them on what they've done. Because I'm a politician and also an economist, so I know that people do respond to incentives. So, for example, I can say I've given up my car, but I am the MEP for South West England. I know how incredibly difficult it is to get around Dorset and Somerset particularly by public transport. So, you know, you you have to create the good public transport alternatives instead of guilt-tripping people about not using their car. Similarly, it's completely absurd that it's always cheaper. <laughs> yes, we love our buses. Um, it's ridiculous that it's so much cheaper to to fly than it is to travel by train. The reason for that is there's no tax on aviation fuel, and airports are subsidised, and meanwhile trains are run privately, and the companies that run them pay a lot of money to shareholders every year. So there's political changes you can make that create the the right incentives, and actually at the European level there's a very serious discussion now about a kerosene tax, and I'm fairly optimistic that will be passed in the near future. But my favourite policy of all is a carbon tax and I think that would transform the way our European economy is working and that is also under discussion and basically if you think about what's happened to our electricity generation system you know if you're like me you see those tweets that say you know for the first time since the industrial revolution we've had a week without coal burning or you know it's been quite amazing the transformation and that's because gordon brown introduced what he called the carbon price floor but what was effectively a carbon tax back in i think 2009 danny probably remembers and that just made it very expensive to produce electricity from coal and that's just driven coal out of our generation system in 10 years and that's the power of a properly designed fiscal incentive or a tax on the right thing and we would be doing that now if it wasn't for the power of fossil fuel lobbying particularly on the Conservative government. So I, I believe that incentives work. I believe that government policy works. And uh, I, yeah, I've just come up with a few examples where I could spend the whole evening talking about these kinds of policies. But the main thing is to say that they work, and the reason we're not making the action we need to make is because we've got the wrong government. So, Stefan, I suspect that there's
1: much of that that you might agree with. If we look at this interface between the individual and the government, and then the economy and the way in which we run our economy that underpins how we all live and work. Do we have the setup now that can bring about the kind of change that I think you all agree needs to happen?
3: If we talk about measurements, we clearly have the wrong measurements. You know, we're, we're measuring the wrong things often. You know, a lot of times it's about GDP, yet again GDP. In a business, it's about quarterly profit results and and return on investments but we've
1: all been led to believe that growth is where we want to be that we want to live in a more prosperous society that a growing economy is one that will bring us you know more jobs a better standard of living it's kind of what what the social structure that we live in is based on
3: Yeah, it's a question of what kind of growth and how you measure growth. So growth could also encompass well-being, health. Measures are extremely important and they can be um, drivers for change, but we need to make sure that we measure in the right way. It's extremely political how we measure things. What is in, what is out.
1: I'm going to bring Catherine in at that point, because actually we've launched into this discussion, but as someone who measures temperatures and weather patterns and so on. What are the kind of, when you think about climate change as a meteorologist, what are you looking at? What are you talking about? What's the sort of time frame, the scope that we're talking about?
4: Yeah, so I think it's important that we don't limit ourselves to thinking about just about temperature, global temperature, which is, of course, the thing that we we focus on a lot, but that we recognise that the impacts of climate change are on many aspects Um, And we're already seeing the impacts of of change in, you know, rising sea levels, in uh, melting glaciers, in changes in rainfall patterns around the world. We also need to think about the timescales of the impacts. So sea level is a good one because, you know, we may think that we can adapt to, to temperature changes that we are already experiencing but we know that sea level is going to continue rising till the end of next century and way, way beyond. And these are things that we've already committed ourselves to through the amount of, of carbon that we've already emitted. So we need to think much more broadly and think about the, the impacts of climate change.
1: What are the timeframes?
4: The faster we can act, the, uh, the, the less of those impacts we will see. If, if we want to keep ourselves below a 2-degree temperature rise, personally, I think 1.5 degrees is already beyond us, but even below 2 degrees we need very rapid action and we need it now. So
1: we need to take action. Who is it that can make these changes? Is a green lifestyle really for everyone, Danny?
0: Well the first thing is that we need to get away from the idea of it being a green lifestyle, like something an individual has to choose. We have to reach a point where um, the zero carbon way of doing things is the norm and it's easily available than affordable for everybody and the frustrating thing is that technology already exists to make that happen and one of the things i looked at in my book the known answer renewable energy book was you know could everyone on the planet have a good inverted commas modern quality of life using just existing renewable technology and and also restricting ourselves to the less destructive forms of renewable technology so solar and, and wind and small-scale hydro rather than mega dams and not chopping down forests to put into power stations and things like this that are called renewable but aren't actually helping us solve the problem. The answer is yes, but only if we are also doing all the other things we know we need to do in the sort of northern industrialised nations to stop our overconsumption of energy. And Much of which, again, the blame is placed on individuals when it, when it shouldn't be because if we actually had decent public transport that would mean that people wouldn't need to be getting in their cars all the time. If we had properly insulated homes, and, uh, and and if things were sort of produced more locally and all of this. I mean, these these studies have been done uh, by groups like the Centre for Alternative Technology in Wales, who've laid out a kind of model of what a modern in inverted commas lifestyle might look like if we were actually doing all this stuff that we know we need to do. And it's around a third of current EU average energy use that we'd need. And we'd still all have, like, fridges and cinemas and, like, be able to go and visit our relatives and all of this stuff, using much less of the energy. And if that was done, then the rest of the world would be able to, if they develop up to that same level of energy use. I think it's really important that we kind of bear this in mind as part of the picture, that this isn't just about some wealthy consumers in the north trying to be a bit more eco and put solar panels on their roof. It's about how do we actually make sure everyone in the world has access to a good quality of life that is available and affordable to them. And at the moment, people don't have those options and a lot of that is to do, as Molly said, with the lobbying power of the fossil fuel industry and other
5: vested interests that have been holding back a lot of legislation and progress in this area. (laughs) But yeah, perhaps I can just come in there and challenge you, because it's not a mm, matter if we choose when we go zero carbon. It's just a matter of, kind of when, because the world is going to break up to the idea. We're seeing the impacts of climate change today. In 20 or 30 years, there will be a lot, lot worse, and people will be dying. And the food crops in India and much of Africa will be devastated. And that is a claim we kind of Freud, and then if we do go above the two degrees, can the temperatures thing get really terrible, uh, and they potentially wipe out mm, 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 millions of s- species and things. So I think it perhaps our generation won't get there, but eventually the... Children of the world will wake up at the fact that they do have to go zero carbon for their very survival. So it just has uh, if we choose to do it before it gets that bad, or if we wait until it gets that bad. Uh, and I think that onus on us is not if we do it, we are going to do it, but we have to do it now to really make that difference to our children's generation.
1: But the things that Danny's described and the kind of the vision that you're presenting, Piers... These are political choices. We're all free to make them within our democratic society. Why, then, Molly, is your party not doing even better than I know it's begun to do well recently? But why aren't we making these choices to have little buses running around the countryside? Why are we choosing, perhaps, to have lower taxes?
2: Well, I think that's fairly clear in the case of our country, which is we've got an absolutely abysmal voting system which forces you to choose between a bad party or a worse now, that's party. A different. That, that's um, a different argument. But that, that's a very important <laughs> argument in the case of Britain. Um, but I think if I can come back to your earlier question about, about lifestyles and, and whether people have to visit their relatives in New Zealand and so on. I mean, I'm not smug about my decision not to fly because I haven't got any relatives in New Zealand and, so, and I hate flying, actually, as well. So, um, you know, for me, I, I know it's an easy choice. And I, don't, I do don't underestimate the difficulty some people face. But the thing is, people are choosing lives now that build in a heavy energy dependence because people are forming relationships with people on the other side of the world and, you know, children emigrate great and then it's very difficult to see your parents and so on and people choose to live in the countryside and then have to have a car to drive into town you know but these are these are choices people are making and I think what's really encouraging is that younger generations are now waking up to this. I mean, it's so inspiring to see our young people on the streets and to see the school strikes and so on, but it's not just that they're protesting and actually fighting for their future, it's that they are also making important decisions around not learning to drive, around their diets, unfortunately at the moment not particularly around not flying, including my own children, but, you know, I think they they have a a really impressive sense of responsibility actually, and as Piers said, you know, we have to have this responsibility towards them, because we may say, oh, I, I want to have my holiday in mexico but we're depriving them of a the future and we're depriving many people across the world of any kind of life at all so these are really big important moral questions that we're asking it's not just about it's much easier for me to drive to the shop than to get a bus it's about human survival and so i think yeah i mean i don't want to guilt trip people but i think we should take the responsibility seriously stephan again we're coming back
1: to individual versus societal but what about business lots of criticism here of the fossil fuel industry but business more broadly how do you get business to take this seriously beyond the kind of greenwashing
3: the first question we need to ask ourselves what is actually business now i think everybody seems to have something in mind when you hear the word business Uh, often it is bp and other big companies but you know many of you might be freelancers might be running small, medium-sized companies. Um, you might be involved in micro-businesses. So, business is actually something which is much broader than we often think. When you talk about business, you're really talking really about society. So uh, there's there's a good reason why the University of Exeter has set up and is setting up a new institute called the Global Systems Institute because we've got to start thinking in systems terms rather than in terms of individual actors or individual business terms. We've got to change systems, and that's not just business, that's all of us here, it's governments, it's civil society, it's, it's everyone.
2: I'd like to just come in on the issue of business because um, I'm quite involved in the issue of sustainable finance, and that's really important because nothing happens in business unless it's finance. But we've changed some really significant European laws recently. You won't have read about this in the newspaper, so I'm going to share it with you. And one of the things that's changed is we've now got mandatory disclosure, and what that means is you have a right as a pension holder or somebody that's got an investment or a bank account to know exactly the impact of the money you're holding. And what astonished me when we first started working on this law is that actually 40 percent of the money that was held by people in this audience was just basically dark money you didn't have a right to know how it was invested so it could have been cutting down rainforests and putting in palm oil plantations and last april we passed a law that changes that so you now have an absolute right to know and of course once that becomes transparent then the finance companies change what they're doing they shift their investment from some companies to other companies and so i think it's a At the grand scale, it's a really important step forward. And the other piece of law that is also important is around benchmarks. And this is a a bit more technical, but essentially there's a lot of passive investors, including the Japanese public pension fund. And somebody came to me from the Bank of Japan and said, well, we're looking for an index, basically. So a bunch of companies, so we can transfer some of our money, billions, And we've set up some indexes now which are low-carbon indexes, and in those indexes you can only receive that money if you are aligned with the Paris Agreement already. So there are investors wanting to put their money in that direction, and what we've been doing is, is making sure that we have tight definition so there isn't greenwashing. So I I just like to share these things because there are people often say nothing's happening on climate change nobody's got a plan but I can tell you we, we are taking action and we are taking action on finance that will affect where money can flow and so which businesses will have a chance of getting investment and without the investment they won't be able to carry on.
1: Is one of the problems with climate change as an issue right now is that politically it's seen as being of the left? Is it divisive peers, and does that, in a sense, deter people from recognising something that should be above, beyond
5: politics? Yeah, well, well, I do, do, do guess I should say... that yeah, I, I, I do sit on this independent government committee, and I really can't be political with that, so we have to give independent advice to government, and that has to be ubiquitous across all the... All political parties, but I, but 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 I absolutely would say that's why our country is doing virtually better than any other country out there in the world. If you compare it to Australia in particular, in the country we haven't made it a political thing necessarily, and we have very good cross-party support from all political parties. I mean, some parties like the party kind of might say they do better than the other ones but in fact there is not a big difference between them all on their stance on climate change that so I think you you do kind of talk a different talk if you talk to a conservative politics you talk about opportunities and the business op- 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 opportunities if you talk to members of the Green Party, you talk about completely changing our democracy. But I think you want to keep it as apolitical as, 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 as we can, because it's, uh, uh, just as soon as it becomes political, things don't get done
1: tailoring the message. Catherine, I'm going, to bring, I'm going to bring you both in. Everyone's done. Catherine, I'm going to bring you in. Yeah, well,
4: I was just going to say that, that I think the other thing that, we, that we've done in this country is to make the, the um, policy evidence-based and come from the science. And so certainly the Met Office has a, long, a strong link into government. We are, we are government advisors. But actually, all the universities as well, I mean, Pierce sits on the Climate Change Committee, we have really fed through that science into government policy, and that's certainly not true in many of the other countries.
3: Stefan. Just going back to Piers' comment about, you know, UK is doing particularly well on climate change. Maybe it is, but maybe it isn't. Again, it's a question of measurement. So, you know, every other day there's a politician coming on camera and saying, oh, look, you know, UK, fantastic example of how it can be done. Drax, one of the biggest power stations, used to be coal, now biomass, right? Where's the biomass coming from? forests in North America, often uh, old-growth forest, being imported, So now Drax can burn, uh, not fossil fuels, but biomass, and it is seen as as carbon neutral. So Drax is now officially, uh, in government's eyes, uh, one of the greenest energy generators of the country. Well, not so, depending on how you measure things. So that's one example. You mentioned earlier, if you have consumption-based measurement systems, the UK is not doing as well, because basically you click... I buy on on Amazon. This stuff is shipped from all over the world. It never ever appears on the carbon emissions measurement of the UK because the, the emissions occur in in China. And we are very good in this country of exporting uh, industries elsewhere, and so that we can focus on our financial services and other service industries in this country. So there, you know, there's a lot of measurement going on, which which isn't quite correct, and, and hence we need to think about how we measure. Can I
2: argue with Piers?
5: Oh, please. Uh, I'll let Piers come uh, I'm here. just going to say, we, I think I'm going to slightly change what I said. I, I, perhaps I say we are not doing well, but we are, we are definitely doing better than very nearly every other big industrialised society. So about that, that tells us how far we have to go as the whole t- t- earth.
2: Molly. Right, I'm going to start by agreeing with Piers before I disagree with him. I do agree, I agree with you both. I think it's really good that we've used science, we've used science to inform policy. I think that's great. And I do agree that at least back in 2008 with the Climate Change Act, we were then leading the world. We've slid back a long way since then. But I don't think it's true to say we're leading the world now. I mean, Extinction Rebellion says 2025 for zero carbon. I I don't think that's realistic. The Green Party, based on work by the Centre for Alternative Technology, says 2030 for zero carbon. But Finland the government of Finland is saying 2035 and um, they're doing that with a lot of carbon capture through tree planting and so on, but you know that's what an ambition looks like, that's what it looks like actually reacting to a, a climate emergency and just to come back to your point about social justice, um, of course it's not good to have climate change as a political football and that's not actually what's happening, I mean I see in the European Parliament every group in that Parliament is now saying we need to make this sustainability transition, as, as you say, the, the right wing think it's a great opportunity for business and the left we think it's a great opportunity for jobs in every community, and I'm, I'm in the latter camp. But I think it's really important that as we move through this process towards becoming a sustainable economy and tackling climate change, we do that in a way that enhances rather than diminishes social justice. If we just allow business to continue to own these major resources, then we will end up more unequal than we were at the beginning of the process. And just one example of this, you, you may know that the seabed belongs to the Crown Estate, which means that every time an offshore wind farm is put up, the value of of the installation of that wind turbine goes to the Crown Estate. Now, there's a deal where that money then goes to the HMRC and 15% goes back to the Queen. But that's been increased to 25% because the Queen needs her palaces upgrading, apparently. They're all falling down. Now, to me, that's outrageous. You know, I can think of a lot better things to do with that 25% of all the value of the wind turbines that are going to be put up off our coast. I would like to see that. I mean, I'm sorry if a few palaces have to crumble, but I would like to see that insulating the homes of poor people who will otherwise die of cold in the winter. You know, it's about (laughs) political priorities. But anyway, that's a, that's a somewhat cheap political point and I'm not a Republican and I've got a soft spot for the Queen like everybody else. But I do think the important point is if we don't think about how we fund the transition and we don't ask those questions about ownership and control, we will miss that amazing opportunity to create greater ownership, wider ownership and greater equality as we move through this sustainability transition. And that's, that's really my priority for, for what we're doing right now. Danny, I'm going to bring you in because you were nodding through a lot of
1: that, but you must understand that Your worldview is a very particular one and it's going to alienate as many
0: people as it attracts. Well, that doesn't seem to be the evidence of public polling. A poll just coming out this week saying 71% of people in the UK think that climate change is a more important issue than Brexit. This isn't isn't just a minority of people banging this drum. And most of the ideas that we're talking about have a lot of broad support, because actually a lot of the ideas we're talking about would would benefit most people if they were put into place. And there are some things that are tricky and sticky, and we've talked about flying, and that's an obvious one. We've talked about the relationship a lot of people have with their cars, that's another really tricky one. There are some things that are not necessarily immediately easy, easily popular but most of the changes we're talking about would actually benefit most people and uh, and to talk about them in the in, in way that also includes justice and talks about fairness is also popular with a lot of people these aren't ideas that are or should be attached into a particular political viewpoint think the difficulty is that we've seen again for many years this sort of Actually, these ideas being quite popular in the population, not being translated through into government policy because governments aren't necessarily listening to th- that kind of broader perspective and that broader opinion. People, people like me who are not—I'm very aware—I'm not to everybody's taste, and that's fine. Um, but if I can be doing stuff that is creating change in a way that is helping to make these these broader ideas better known and more popular, and reduce the voices that are blocking them, then then that wider consensus can can start to come through. And and you know, so I'm, I'm happy with being a bit unpopular sometimes if if that change is happening
1: right well let's see how unpopular all of us really are (laughs) i'm going to open it up to all of you we're going to try and bring up the house lights so we can see you fantastic what a lot of you fantastic so
2: i just wanted to ask the panel what they thought about the idea of population control
1: my question is how can we best overcome politics that assumes that action on climate change is effectively political suicide because it would be reducing the standard of living of the voting population.
2: And one more there. I understand you said that quite a high percentage support these ideas. How come these ideas aren't being put into legislation? Molly? On the question of population, I, I mean, the lifestyle question is really important, because if you had a lifestyle that was half as energy and resource-intensive as your current lifestyle, then there could be twice as many people you know for the same amount of impact so that does matter but i do think we need to think more about making space for nature because of course if you think about what extinction rebellion are saying on the one hand they're saying urgent action on climate change but on the other hand they're drawing attention to the massive species loss right across the world and that's something that we cannot bring back and that's another devastating reality that we have to deal with but here I, I also think that the picture's more positive than is often pointed. I mean, the UN has these extraordinary protect, uh, predictions of 11 billion people by mid-century, but actually the, the demographic trends are not showing that that will be the case. So in, in the Western developed countries birth rates are falling quite dramatically, which means over time you will see a gradually declining population. And in the poorer countries of the world, this also happens when you reach a certain level of economic security so that you don't see your children as an insurance policy for your old age and also when women are educated and empowered to take control of their reproduction. So there's a lot we can do to affect population in in the poorer countries and in our country it's already beginning to decline. So I I feel reasonably optimistic about this, but I I do think we need to take the question of population seriously and find ways culturally not to sort of encourage people to have more children as as we often do. If people make a choice not to have children, you know, that should be they should be congratulated, not looked on as if there's something missing in their lives. (laughs)
5: Peers, I can sense you want to come in yeah, well, before I move on. I want to come on. in, but I don't have to. I want to. to ask more questions. Yeah. I just want to say I think it probably is political suicide, or is currently, but because the two things we have to change now, we've got the, our our transportation and our p- p- buildings, and they're two things that are really kind of personal, and they do require a huge investment of about. 15 or 20 billion. And I think the government are petrified that they do not know where this money will come from Uh, 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 and they have to persuade people to live in their homes differently and transport differently. And they're quite petrified. So so, uh, I think what we all have to do, we have to really write to our politicians and we have to or put different ones in power and um, well, we have to persuade them that we aren't going to vote f- 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 kind of them t- 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 out uh, if, they, if they were to ask us for the 15 billion pounds. So that's a challenge. And I, and I think perhaps with the extinction Rebellion, they are beginning to get this kind of pushed from the... electorate but it's really happening for the first time, but it has to continue, and it has to be very strong and powerful they'd I
1: think France and the Gilets Jaunes was quite interesting, wasn't it, when Macron, kind of, I think, sitting in Paris, thought, I can put taxes up, and then those people in those rural backwaters of France suddenly said, oh, well, I'm not very happy to well, pay more but, petrol for my car. But that car. takes
2: us back to what uh, Piers were saying earlier, doesn't it, which is that you have to do the transition in a socially just way. So if you don't provide people with an alternative, if you just make them pay more for the, their existing lifestyle, then of course they'll rebel. Yeah. So that was very bad politics. I just wanted to say as well about 15 billion. I think we'd need a lot more money than that but £15 billion is the annual subsidy to the aviation industry by not taxing fuel, so it's not a lot of money. <laughs> yeah.
1: so I'm going to move on and take some more questions. So there's a lady in the middle there, gentleman at the front here, another lady there. So I'll take those three.
0: So uh, in, in terms of climate change, how are we going actually to deliver if we're all based on lowest-cost delivery rather than best value?
2: Dan, you mentioned veganism. And I don't think it's been promoted
4: enough that if you go vegan, you make the single biggest change. In Exeter,
2: we have great vegan options, more and more every single minute. And if we, we as a family, are boycotting anyone who isn't. And I think boycotting is another massively powerful thing that we as individuals can do. Um, We've just had the hottest month on record, June. There's Arctic wildfires going on. It's that urgent. What is happening and why isn't that on TV?
1: I'm going to take that last question as directed at me. I don't get to choose what goes on the television, but I have a say in what happens on the radio. And I have to say, it is getting much, much easier to get editors to take climate change stories more seriously. I was telling Molly just before we came on that the editor that I work with said you know, the reason we don't do climate change enough on the news is because it's not an event, it's a process, and news depends on, oh, it's happened today, or it's, it's called a peg. You need a peg to hang things on. And he said, let's forget the peg. It's happening all the time, and let's just make a commitment to do the stories. And I think that's a, that is a, a change that is happening throughout the media, but that's a personal opinion, which I'm not supposed to give you, but there we are. <laughs> Done it now.
4: Richard right. can I just... On, yeah. On, on that topic, I mean, the Met Office and, and many of the other science institutes around the world recognise the importance of, you know, immediate communication. So, you know, we are doing a lot more now of looking at, for example, the heatwave that we've had. Is that... Uh, more likely under climate change, what are the risks involved. We've released today the, the information about the temperature record and that the last uh, the, the 10 warmest years have been since 2002. So we're trying to package that information in ways that people can consume and use and, uh, and is media-friendly so that we, these things are getting on the news more.
1: Uh, do you think... Piers was talking about this earlier. Do you think... The messaging matters. How you put that information out there.
4: Absolutely, it does. Yes, I mean it's very easy to talk in very detailed scientific language, and people will switch off.
5: Yeah, and I think what I would say is that you do, you do raise an important point that that only get worse, and that 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 is going to get worse. What, 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 whatever we can choose to do today uh, and that says we have to adapt to it as well we have to prepare the world to cope with that and we have to put just as much work and effort and into the adaptation as we as we do into getting our society to zero carbon. Danny so I'm going to bring
1: you in.
0: Yeah so I mean just to, to respond also to that to that urgency point I think how we talk about this is so important and, and whose stories we tell and what impacts of climate change we talk about because for too long this has been talked about in this country as though it's a future problem it's something for our children and, and that I think has sapped some of the urgency away when in fact of course in reality the real impa- impacts have been happening for quite a while to people around the world I and mean we've seen a, a tripling of natural disasters since the 1980s and, and the people who are really feeling those impacts how do we bring their stories and their voices into how we talk about this because they're the ones who know better than any of us what what the impact of a climate change world are like. And that's something we've been trying to do through our campaigning and activism, But but to include in that stories of power and stories of hope, because that's the other thing that's incredibly important. As soon as we sit down and say, oh, we're probably doomed, then we're definitely doomed. Like, as soon as we give up and don't do anything, then we're definitely not going to fix the problem. And if and once you start working, uh, as we've done with different communities around the world who are standing up and fighting this fight, and often fighting literally for their lives against industries that, like fossil fuel industries that are destroying their lands and their livelihoods and against climate change, you realise there are incredible stories of resistance around the world that we just don't hear about. You don't hear about the campaigners in Algeria who stopped the fracking industry from, from, from taking... I was in fact BP talking about British impacts elsewhere in the world <laughs> it was BP trying to frack in, in Algeria a local movement stopped them these these stories and these fights and these struggles are happening and a lot of them are incredibly important incredibly inspiring and stories we need to hear both in terms of because that's where so much of the fight is both in terms of because these are the stories of the real impacts that we need to understand that the human stories that will maybe get people to listen and to change and also because there's real stories of, of hope and power and struggles we need to support because we can't just restrict our change to the UK you know that won't, that won't solve the problem we need to be supporting movements around the world who are also pushing for that change so uh, i think these these things will tie together in in trying to have that that wider view and making some of these connections and if the media won't tell these stories then it's up to us to bring out those voices and tell them ourselves in every way we can
3: Stefan. A slight, maybe unexpected, move against the media. I'd just like to, you know, let us sort of stop for a moment. Like, do we really need more media? Do we need more images? Do we need more screens? Do we need more and more and more? Or do we actually need to stop and switch all this stuff off, Facebook, TV, and and even the lovely radio sometimes, to kind of stop and think and feel the earth so... Yes, we need to package stuff and media in the right way so people can consume it. Yes, we need to be informed. Yes, we need to be politically engaged. But we also need to stop to start feeling. Once you're on the land, once you walk along the coast, once you start disconnecting from the everyday hustle, you actually realise that the important things come to you, including climate change. Are you
1: advocating thinking?
3: (laughs) I know, it's overrated these days.
1: Now, Molly, I think you, you're concerned
2: about veganism. You've got your reservations, I'm, I think I mean, it's I'm, fair I'm to say. I'm the MEP for South West England. Yeah. You know, I mean, I can't just say to everybody, go vegan tomorrow and buy lentils <laughs> grown halfway around the world. You know, that would not be a wise thing to no. do. The thing is, it's not a simple answer to how we will organise land, food and farming in a climate emergency I mean I was a bit flippant about veganism earlier on and I am genuinely changing the way I eat and um, the most encouraging thing is that young people don't have to make those big changes because an awful lot of them are vegetarian and 3.5 million people in the country apparently are vegans and most of them are younger people so that's great that new consumers are coming in and and already making that choice but um, I I was once part of a, a sustainable No, community-supported agriculture in Stroud. And so I only ate what came from the local land. And most of that was vegetables. But, uh, you know, root vegetables, actually. And there were large parts of the year when it was... Basically turnips and onions and the odd leek and that was it. And I've I've done that, but I I don't think most people would do that. And I'm not sure either that that is necessarily the answer. And I think most vegans don't do that. I think most vegans are buying avocados and other things that make that diet a lot more interesting. And so then that raises other questions about the energy impact of that diet. And of course also, who's going to grow our food? I mean, I've organised events in the European Parliament about growing more protein crops, so more peas and beans basically because there's a lot of the protein crops that are part of a vegan diet you can't grow in this country you can grow quite a few nuts Uh, you can grow various pulses but a lot of the pulses that won't grow in this climate and also who's going to be growing that food so we need to involve farmers in this dialogue and most of the farmers in southwest england are engaged in dairy and meat production so this is why i said at the beginning i'm organizing these dialogues to try and get all those people into the room together to, to talk about these questions but perhaps the most important bottom line here in terms of climate is that the soil itself has an amazing capacity to absorb and store carbon and that's been completely wasted because of the way we farm So if we had more organic farming, and I think that's going to include deep soil organic grazing, then we will be able to capture back a lot of the carbon dioxide. And as the people at that end of the panel said earlier on, we're not going to stay within the 1.5 degree limit unless we get involved in major carbon capture. Now we've already put so many carbon... Emissions out there. And so that means changing the way we farm. It also means planting more trees and it means agroforestry and restoration of peatlands. And what I'm really excited about with this project I'm organising is I really want to end up with a map that says, you know, bit of rewilding over here, more trees over there, you know, peatland restoration on Dartmoor more peas growing here there's going to be a series of, of discussions with experts um, but you know all of us deliberating together and hopefully coming up with a map at the end but I, I'm not sure it'll say everybody has to be vegan I'm sure it'll say moving towards plant-based diets but I'd really like to think that most of those plants could be grown here in South West England. Another round of questions yes. Uh, with the greatest respect uh, you haven't really addressed the population problem density population particularly particularly in the UK. All the population that we have need buildings, they need houses, homes to live in. That's taking up land which is destroying habitat and it's not allowing us to put the trees.
1: It's come up already that this issue of talking and how we talk about things. We We are living in this extraordinary socially constructed silence where one of the reasons we haven't done anything is we haven't talked about it. And one of the difficulties with the academy and with the media is that we are not investing the urgency of the situation into the way we talk about it. And if people listen to the tone and the body language of what is imparted to them, which is how we engage with stuff, then we take our level of urgency from that. How can we incorporate that level of urgency into how the climate scientists are talking about this with the rest of us?
2: Um, Thanks for being here. It's fantastic. Um, I feel very strongly about this, but I am very conscious that we here in Exeter and the Southwest, we are very privileged. And I would like to address the education system within inner city areas or areas with less privilege and how they can approach climate change and how they can approach veganism when they are living on incredibly low incomes, food banks, you know, children growing up in a society where this is probably the least of their concerns, and I'd like to um, open that up for
5: discussion. Uh, Piers, I'm going to start with you. Yeah. Take as much uh, or as little... Yeah, okay, sure. Um, okay, I will first come back to the population density and kind of where we do find the land for 30,000 <laughs> hectares of planting per well, that only increased the tree cover of the country from 13 to 17 percent. Uh, and in fact, all the thing we have to do is take one th- one third of can- can pasture and agricultural production and turn it into woodland. And that gets back to what Molly um, was talking about. And that is a fact that we have to have the agriculture industry as part of the part of the solution. We really can't alienate them. In fact, they have to be on board with us, and we have to give them the right incentive to be able to take that part of the land out of production.
1: Catherine, I wonder if if you'd like to comment on this urgency. I
4: think it's important as a climate as government climate scientists, that we do remain independent. And so it is difficult to use a tone that implies action. But, as I said before, I think we do need to use the right language and we do need to talk about the right things. So, you know, I think there is there's certainly more that we can do in terms of getting our message out there and the, and the, the sort of public debate... Uh, Is something that we de- we're really keen to engage in, and we want to have more. And I think I feel that there has been a change um, in, in the last year or so that people are really responding more to to the the messages that we're putting out there. Um, But it is important, I think, that we remain independent. That is the way that we advise government. If we're seen to be not independent, then I don't think that evidence base will be used in the way that we think it should be.
3: Stephen, Let's remember a lot of the regions in this country already do a lot better than England. Uh, Scottish government has been um, pursuing land reform, for example, for many, many years, specifically addressing the population question. And you, you said something like, we have to take land out of production... I fundamentally disagree with that. There's no land that needs to t- be taken out of production. We need to rethink what the land is for in connecting back to the social justice question. If we find a way to reconnect people to the land, give people land to grow food, to uh, increase their well-being, and, and rather than a few London-based billionaires owning half of the country, then we can do a lot of things. You can produce a lot of on land that is sustainably or has a sustainable uh, usage so it's about land use change and doing something more interesting with land and that addresses from my point of view the population question as well.
2: And on the, the question about social justice and education I think there's two parts to that question. I think on on the education side, my observation is teachers are doing a really amazing job, no matter which school they're working in, and I think the the proof of that is that young people have an extraordinary sense of responsibility and knowledge about climate change. I would like to say we should teach less to the exam, and we should teach much more about systems thinking. I think everybody should have to study ecology. That would transform our society. I mean, on the sort of middle-class angst issue I mean I've suffered from that all my life and I think it's important that we recognize that and I've already mentioned the way I think the sustainability transition could bring about a lot more social justice but let's not think we can wrap everything up and solve it all at the same time I mean we need to have major transfers of of wealth and income in this society we need to increase tax rates we need to introduce a citizen's income in my view there's a lot of policies that would help the poor um, alongside the policies we need to bring in to, to tackle climate change and I would say as somebody that's had enormous privilege in my life I try to use that privilege to to help other people whether it's about climate change or whether it's about poverty and i think that's more constructive than just feeling guilty really for having been so privileged
0: and uh, one other point on that is that yes it's true that like generally speaking those of us who have a bit more privilege who are lucky enough to have the kind of jobs or, or lives where we have time to think about um climate change the the fact is you know we often are sort of uh, sitting in a particular kind of white middle class part of society but that doesn't mean that the people who don't fit that description don't care. And I think as you hinted, like it's it's maybe lower down people's immediate priority list and I think the solution to this that we need to be looking at is how do we work in alliance and in solidarity with the other struggles that are going on on the ground because people are organising in cities, they're organising around housing, they're organising in trade unions, they're organising uh, around there's, there's amazing groups to, uh, challenging fuel poverty. These are all issues that connect completely to climate climate change. If you're in a bad house, then part of the reason your house is bad is terrible insulation. And, and, like, and, uh, and if you're fighting against your landlord to try and get that fixed. These are issues that are completely connected to climate change. And we in the climate change movement need to get a lot better at actually, rather than thinking we need to go into communities and educate people about climate change, we need to actually listen to the, to the realities and the struggles people are facing day to day and say, where is the common ground? Where can we stand together and fight the same battles? And, and uh, where can maybe those of us with a bit more privilege be giving support to those struggles in a way that is actually benefiting all these causes at once and this is something that the environmental movement in this country hasn't traditionally been very good at but there's beginning to be sort of ways in which we're trying to make these connections and and that to me is is where the future needs to go and and part of that is around struggles around um, anti-racism and the fact that part of the reason that people in this country I think have been find it easy to dismiss climate change or why a certain section of the population find it easy to dismiss is because most of it's happening to people in other countries who aren't white and that this is a really important part of the discussion and the struggle and so I was really pleased to see uh, Reclaim the Power climate action group primarily who did a big camp last weekend that was also about migration and was saying we also need justice for migrants especially because with climate change we're probably going to see more migration and these are the ways in which we're going to connect with some of these communities outside the kind of white middle class bubble and make these links and that's where i think as well we need to be very cautious around the population question because often that is being used as a kind of code by some people to actually bring in arguments that are xenophobic that are about raising borders actually have sort of xenophobia or racism their roots around population control and anti-immigration that are going to absolutely alienate huge communities that, that we in the climate change movement need to be absolutely standing in solidarity with and working together with to find shared solutions to this problem that benefit everyone and also that's just not a vision of the future that I want to be part of personally mm-hmm.
1: Well, thank you very much to everybody on the panel, to Danny, to Molly, to Stefan, to Catherine and Piers. I hope some of your questions were answered. I think we raised quite a few too. Carry on chatting, carry on having this conversation. There is an extra treat. Toby Marks, who's known as Banco de Gaia, is going to perform a new musical composition that's been commissioned by the Lovelock Centenary. Thank you very much for coming, everyone.
2: Big Bang. It took an awful long time before things cooled off. I'm not going to give the exact figures. I don't carry it in mind. And then it took an awful long time for stars to form, and they they have to go through their processes and blow up uh, some of the big ones uh, and produce the heavier elements and whatnot. And it takes. Another long, long period before there's anything. So we are very much jolly, come late, and uh, but we are the first ones to uh, perhaps be lucky enough to get life.